Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. I'm sitting in for Alina this week as she is currently completing BPTC exams and is therefore, for obvious reasons, very, very busy. We wish her all the very best with her exams. This episode is about what to do if you don't get pupillage. Finding pupillage is often a pretty horrendous ordeal that involves the completion of many long and arduous application forms, trekking all over the place for interviews, although not this year, as we saw many interviews take place virtually, which of course presented new and unprecedented challenges for pupillage applicants. Interviews also often take place around the time of BPTC exams, and this is arguably one of the hardest periods of your academic career. Of course, finding pupillage also means dealing with the inevitable rejection. My guest today has recently obtained tenancy at Three Temple Gardens and has a flourishing criminal defence practice in the youth, magistrates and crown courts. But her path to pupillage and tenancy was not a straightforward one and it involved several rounds of applications. Angharad Hughes is here to chat to me about what she did when she didn't get pupillage and how she picked herself up not once but twice to try again. Hello Angharad and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Let's just get straight to the nitty gritty of your pupillage hunt because there is just no point in beating around the bush with this topic I don't think. The pupillage hunt It just is what it is. So I know you applied for three consecutive rounds. How did you find your ratio of applications to first rounds and then first rounds to second rounds and second rounds to offers improve with each time? So my first time was pretty disastrous um, as I got nothing. So not even one single interview. So that was quite soul destroying. The second time round, I got two first round interviews, but no second rounds at all. So at least then I could see there was some improvement. And then for the final round, I got three first rounds, three second rounds, two offers, and I was reserved for the third. Oh gosh, that was a big jump on the last round, hey? (laughs) It was, it was, it was what I finally needed. Um, but yeah, it, so it started off pretty badly. <laughs> Did you find that your preparation for interviews like changed year on year? Did you find that you learned lots that you were able to take forward and implement? Yes. So essentially what happened was, after, so first year, I mean, re- looking back now at the, my first round applications is actually embarrassing. They were so bad. I think in one of them, I made reference to, you know, like Atticus Finch or something equally cringe that, you know, you should never do. So it was just awful. Um, And then from then, I was able to build on experience. But I think the biggest thing that changed for me from second round to third round was that actually at a set of chambers, I won't name um, a woman who I'm still friends with now basically took me under her wing and just did advocacy training with me. So I did loads of bail apps and plea and mitigations, which made such a difference for criminal sets um, because that's the, one of the main things that you do in interview. So for anyone who is looking for that um, criminal pupillage, I would definitely advise just going with your friends 
and just rehearsing bail and clear mitigations because I think that's what helped me the most. And you know, I don't think it's really any secret that although obviously every people is interview, no matter what area of law is grueling, but I don't think it's any secret that there's nothing quite as grueling as a criminal law set people is interview. I mean, they're known to be some of the hardest interviews that, that you'll probably ever do in your entire life. I mean, I've never done any other ones. Oh, no, I tell a fib. I did do a Gough Square interview, which was awful for me because I got asked a family law question and I just sat there like, what? I have no idea. Um, so for me, that was horrible. But yeah, they're really tough because um, you've got to do the advocacy and then they also ask you to debate on something and things like that. They are pretty... Um, tricky <laughs> yeah and I mean they don't sort of shy away from like extremely controversial things when when they get you to debate they're really putting you on the spot and you're kind of like not knowing at all what side you should be coming down on this yeah definitely a hundred percent and often they'll ask you to what side you picked and then they'll tell you to argue the other side which again is pretty cool that's right but they'll not give you any <laughs> indication that they're going to do that until until they do. I remember in one of my interviews, um, and this is sort of like something that I, whenever anyone asks me, you know, like, what do you need to prepare for in interviews? I always say like the unexpected. And that's not helpful at all because you don't know what you're preparing for then. But I remember one of my interviews, um, they, they made us prepare a presentation before the interview and they told us it was going to be like a three minute presentation and then we got into the interview and um, they said, OK, stand up and do your presentation. Oh, but by the way, you only have a minute and a half. So you had to like immediately cut sort of 1.5 of the things. So it's kind of a test of like, could you could you immediately choose what was most relevant yeah. and most important for you to say? And obviously that's important for whenever a judge might be tapping their watch saying like, hurry up, counsel, you need to finish. Mm. And you've got to like skip through all of the most important points. But it was a bit of a deer in the headlights moment, but you just have to prepare for those as best you can. And as you say, uh, going with your friends and practicing is just yeah. one of the best ways to do that. Definitely, I agree. In terms of, well, now that you're a tenant, do you have any other tips that you would be given in terms of preparation aside from the practicing element? So I would just definitely look at every single legal topic that is coming on at the moment. Um, so for those people who are being interviewed around this time, uh, looking at modern slavery that's like a really hot topic things like that the coronavirus regulations all of those sorts of things were around these interview times and I know that a few sets will have asked questions on that um you can normally just go on like the BBC legal section and you can see various things that are coming up and things like that bitcoin cryptocurrencies the new money laundering directives all of those sorts of things are good places to start also, if you know that you've got an interview at a particular set, look at their chamber's website. Have they held any events recently? It's likely that they'll ask you questions on things they've had events on, similar for articles and things like that. So you've really got to keep your finger on the pulse. And I know by the stage of interviews and finishing all of your applications, the last thing you want to do is like, sit there and watch the news and read more legal stuff um, but you just got to fill yourself to the brim with all these things because you never know what could come up I know on the year that I ended up getting pupillage every single set apart from 
one, I think, asked me about the anonymity of defendants in rape cases because that was like a huge hot topic mm, yeah. at the time. So it is quite easy in a way to predict what will come up just by looking at the trends on Twitter and the news generally. A really excellent resource that I don't often hear people speak about and it was actually one of my friends on Bar Course that put me onto it because I had no idea that it existed either. But the daily brief from The Times that you get delivered into your inbox like oh my god that was amazing <laughs> and the times is obviously quite an expensive subscription but you can get a really cheap student subscription and uh, i think it's something like 99p a month while you have uni days so obviously while you're on bptc then if you're applying you can get that and uh and then after bptc often you can just get maybe someone who who is subscribed and then they can just forward you the email if, if there's anything of particular interest but I find that resource to be absolutely excellent. And I don't know if they still do it, but I know that when I went from GDL to Bar Course, I then became a University of Law alumni while still being a student there, which was a bit weird. But as an alumni, you can get a free subscription to The Times for a year. So oh, happy days. Yeah. So you have so 99p a month. Exactly, you know <laughs> what I mean? Every little helps. That sounds great. But honestly, I think it's a resource that... that it should be, I don't know, plastered on billboards outside of, you know, BBTC schools because <laughs> it was genuine, like it was unbelievable every day before people into interviews, I was just reading whatever it was and things did come up, you know. Yeah. So it was great. So I don't think that we can have a conversation about not getting pupillage and what to do when you don't get pupillage without talking about rejection and dealing with and processing that inevitable aspect of the pupillage hunt. How did rejection make you feel? So depressed. I was, yeah, I was so sad. I thought I'm never going to make it. I thought, what's the point? Um, it's thousands and thousands of pounds. Also, it's like a bit embarrassing because nobody in my family or in my friendship circles, other than obviously people that I met at law school, were lawyers or things like that. Or if they were, they were solicitors. And obviously the process there is, is a bit different. So it was almost embarrassing to say year on year, no, still still not got one um, and things like that. So it, it can be really, I mean, it's one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to go through mentally to be able to pick yourself back up again the next year and be like okay I'll, I'll apply again I'll give it another go um, and you just mentioned picking yourself up but how what was your thought process like how did you consciously go about doing that because it's one thing to be like you know oh, I'm going to pick myself up but it's another to actually get your mind in the right space that you're like right I can try this again I'm good enough I know I am let's have it you know so obviously the times when you're getting rejected, when you're continuously refreshing the portal and it changes to unsuccessful, or it's just a silent rejection, as you know, that set has offered pupillage to someone else. When all of that and the dust is settled and you know that it's no hope that year, what I would do is not do anything law related for a while. So just kind of take myself out of it for you know, a week or so not reading about anything or things like that and just going to see my non-law friends. So like detaching yourself. But then what I used to do, which is really cringe, is watch the film A Time to Kill. I don't know if you've seen it. I love that film with Sandra Bullock. Yes. It's honestly the best. That jury speech every time gets me. 
So I, mean, I would watch extremely that. Extremely poignant in Isn't the current it? climate as well with definitely um, the death of George Floyd this week, yeah. especially on Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matters movement. Yeah, one hundred percent. Exactly. And so I would watch that and then I'd be like, okay, so that's that's why I want to do this job. So that's why it's important that I pick myself back up again. And that's why I need to apply again. And then I'd try and work out ways that I could then change my applications or do something different to try and help the next year. But don't get me wrong, there was a lot of wine drinking in between those <laughs> moments to try and comfort myself from not having been successful and we've also all heard like the horrendous stories, especially in the in the days in the aftermath rather of, you know, when people had just have been handed out on it's usually around like the first or second week of May every year. But you hear the stories of people who have been like wrongly told that they have been given pupillage or like wrongly told that they've got a second round interview and then there's an email that follows afterwards to say, Oh, sorry, that was a mistake. I mean, I was just reading some of those people's experience and thinking, what on earth? I mean, it's definitely worse to have thought you had it and then have it taken away. But it is interesting because it has sparked a lot of debate about sort of the responsibility that chambers have to get this information out correctly and to sort of appreciate that they're they're dealing with like your entire life you know in in a small word yes or no it's your it's your entire future at that moment it's it's all that you all that you have to go on something happened to me not as bad as being offered a pupillage and this might make me come off as being really petty but it was when I was a paralegal I was in a client conference at a set of chambers where I'd applied for pupillage while I was in that conference, I got an email through to my inbox saying I'd been invited to interview. So I was very excited, obviously didn't interrupt the client conference to say so. And then during the course of the <laughs> client conference, I got another email informing me that it was actually a mistake. So my own way of getting back to that chambers was that I left a chocolate bar wrapper in their conference room and didn't put it in the bin because <laughs> I was really annoyed that they'd done that to me. But yeah, but you victories. do you do you do seek like desperate redress because you're like, oh, this is they've no idea how much they've just crushed Literally. me. Literally, I was like, I can't believe this happened to me while I'm in your building. <laughs> that is that's terrible. The, the yeah. irony of that is awful. I know. <laughs> what I mean, speaking of like sort of specific sets saying no one year, did you like were you a, a repeat applicant or did you avoid then applying to that chambers that had previously rejected you the next year? So I would still apply to the same ones there were a few that I applied two years in a row and got nowhere so then I didn't bother in the third the third year but actually every offer I got and the reserve were it was the first time I'd ever applied to those sets so yeah I mean it's it's odd I think it's difficult because sometimes you get fixated I know I did on a set that I thought that I really wanted so I would keep applying to them and I did so for all three years, but I didn't get anywhere with them. And then now I a tenant at Three Temple Gardens, I know that, that that was the right fit for me. So I think that it's important actually to think about maybe why you're being rejected and it might be nothing to do with your capability. It might just be that you're not the right fit for that set. And so a good thing to do 
I think, rather than repeatedly applying to the same places, although people do have success stories that way, is look at junior at the junior end of other chambers that you might be interested in. And actually, it might then make sense to you why you're not getting interviews at one place and then you will at these new sets. And I think as well, it's really interesting because sometimes you get this like image in your head of what you think the set is and you're like, oh, I really want mm. to go there or, oh, this is this is like my number one set. If they if they offer me pupillage, it'll be like, you know, the best day ever. Yeah. But then you actually go to the interview and you maybe meet some of the barristers and the vibe just maybe isn't what you thought it was. Yeah. And I think obviously when you're the pupillage applicant, you're just trying to impress, trying to impress, trying to impress. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that if you do get pupillage there, that's where you have to spend you know, pretty much every day for the next f- forever until exactly. you maybe move set. So it's so important that you, you feel like you're going to fit in. Definitely. Because I've had people as well who have ended up getting pupillage in a set that probably wasn't the best fit for them. And then they've had to go and do a third six somewhere else because they didn't get taken on. And so you've got to really think about where you actually want to be. Yeah, and apparently the hunt for a third six is nearly something else in itself. It's just like pupillage all over again. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then you've only got six months to try and prove yourself rather than a year or 18 months. So it can be difficult. What have you learnt from the rejection? I think from being rejected all the time, it's I've learned most of all that it's okay. And actually, in terms of pupillage rejection, it all made sense in the end, because the experience I got in the years that I wasn't a pupil has aided me so much as when I was actually a pupil, because because I was able to paralegal for two years, I then was used to handling clients, court clerking, taking a note, liaising with solicitors, knowing what they want from a case and things like that which if I'd walked straight into pupillage, I wouldn't have had any of that. I also built up relationships with expert witnesses. So even now, I've got a really good relationship with a psychiatrist who I use all the time, which I never would have had if I hadn't have been rejected all those times. So I think that there's definitely something to gain from being rejected because you become a stronger person. You know that when you're unleashed into the magistrate's court, you're not going to win (laughs) every time so you're prepared for that and also yeah you just have a breadth of experience and you can bring that to the role as a pupil and I suppose my next question was going to be what would you say to someone who is currently picking themselves up from a recent rejection last month because the pupillage is uh, the announcements obviously came out just a few weeks ago and so people are probably still pretty you know pretty hurt if they've been rejected Mm. but I suppose what you've just said perfectly sums it up that when one door closes another opens and you've now got this opportunity to go out there and get like really valuable experience for the next 12 months and then try again exactly a hundred percent Elena has actually recently recorded a podcast with Vicky Wilson and Steve Innes all about rejection so if you want to listen to some further advice about how to deal with rejection then you can find that episode wherever you get your podcasts that has been uploaded onto all of the platforms. Between BPTC and pupillage, you worked as an assessor for parking on private land appeals, (laughs) as a paralegal in two different firms and as a legal researcher for a QC. So let's start with the assessor job. I have never heard of this job. Please tell me more about what it is. 
Honestly, it was the funniest job. It was, I worked there with two people I did the bar course with, and essentially you're like the supreme core of the parking world. And you decide when someone appeals whether or not they have to pay their parking ticket on private land. So say if they've overstayed in a car park or something like that. And honestly, it was so funny, the reasons people would write in. I think the funniest one I ever had was, and I didn't know this existed, but there's apparently like an emergency services for swans. And so if, (laughs) yeah, I know. So the reason they were appealing the ticket was because they'd got a call about a distressed swan in this river. And so they didn't have a chance to pay a ticket for their van or whatever, because they had to go and deal with this swan. And I was just like, this is so bizarre. But yeah, it was a really funny job. Really boring after a while, but it was quite interesting. <laughs> I, I remember where I studied at the library in town that I like I used to go to after school every day whenever I was studying for my A-levels and I had like just started driving and I got my own little car and stuff. And there's a library car park, but it was really small. So it would obviously fill up super quickly. And there was a Tesco next door, but the Tesco was one of those privately owned car parks and it had a big sign up saying, you know, two hours maximum stay. But I was obviously in the library for longer than two hours. And one day I came back and I had a ticket and I did appeal it. And my reason was... Like, I'm studying for my A-levels. Like, I'm doing something really good. Like, please let me off with this. I'm also really poor because I'm a student. But if it was you that made the decision that I still had to pay my parking fine because they they got back to me and basically said, absolutely not, you're paying this fine. (laughs) That is hilarious that it could have actually been me. It's really like, Sozhan, no. I should have gone with the swans. (laughs) You should have, the more elaborate ruse. But (laughs) I know that the QC you worked with um, as a legal researcher He specialises in the areas of bribery and corruption, economic Mm -hmm. sanctions, financial services, fraud, money laundering and proceeds of crime. Did this work spark an interest for you in any of these niche sort of really, really super high flying areas of criminal law? Yeah, definitely. It's it's really interesting. I mean, his level of work, I'll never be able to touch probably ever, even (laughs) if I got to his level, because he's just so brilliant. But it was so interesting, the stuff that he used to do, and he used to advise on. Um, Obviously, it's, it's all really, really confidential. But he used to be advising governments and things like that. And I just thought it's so interesting to be able to be in an area of law where you have that much kind of prowess because obviously they so much overlap and even more so now with things like cryptocurrencies which I find really interesting because they're all multi-jurisdictional and things like that I really feel like fraud although it's always seen as a bit of a glamorous side white collar crime is going to become even more interesting and also might become more nitty-gritty than the normal way that you look at fraud. So I'm definitely interested in it. Were you the only legal researcher for him at that time? I was. So he's actually amazing. He doesn't do it so much now because he's kind of moved to a different format. But he used to take on people for about six months or a year as legal researchers and then he'd rotate and you'd get someone else. So he'd get people that were very close to have just being students or literally just coming out of university. Um, And it was, honestly, it was like having a pupillage before a pupillage. Yeah, because it because was just me and him. Exactly, and that, to, that's what yeah. I was going to ask. It feels like it would just be super intense, you know, working mm. for just one person rather than like, I don't know, in terms of like working as part of a department or something like that. But I yeah. suppose it was a great preparation then for pupillage because you were 
directly responsible for work and directly liable to one particular barrister, which is yeah. exactly how it works on people is when you have your supervisor. Definitely. I will never forget. It was like having a supervisor. He's brilliant. I'm still really good friends with him. But I remember the first piece of work that I ever did for him and it was written work. And I came, he used to have a basement room. So I went, I went downstairs into the basement after lunch. So, and he was like, right, Angharad, I, I don't want you to be disheartened when you look at this piece of work, but I have made some changes. And I was, I was actually quite proud of this piece of work. I thought it was really good. I spent a lot of time on it. And I went round to the other side of his desk or whatever, and he had it up on the screen. Honestly, you know, like track changes where oh, everything has a red line changes. through it. And like it, the only it just tears it apart. Yeah, we're like the and and. And I was looking at it like, how am I not meant to be disheartened? And I think I went and cried to my mum that day after work. But honestly, I've never been more grateful because he's made me much better at legal drafting and writing articles and things like that. Without him, I don't think I would have survived pupillage. <laughs> Let's talk about paralegal. So we both know, having both worked as paralegals, that you will not live the life that you say played out by Meghan Markle on suits and far from it. <laughs> Paralegaling is tough work and, you know, you're at the very, very bottom of the ladder in a law firm. Arguably, I don't know, you're not even really on the ladder at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it can involve like such long hours for such little reward and like an immense amount of pressure, you know, to complete work on behalf of your fee earners. And you're directly responsible to clients. You're directly responsible to the court. Um, and it's just like, it seems it just seems like crazy responsibility because you're just fresh out of bar school and you really don't feel like you have a clue doing very much. But it has to be said that you do learn an awful lot very, very quickly. Would, would you agree that you definitely do feel like you got a super amount of experience in a short period of time? Oh, 100%. So the, I was a paralegal at two places. The first one, I was only there for three months, but I learned an extraordinary amount in that three months. And what was interesting was, so where I paralegaled, there were two different types of criminal firms, proper legal aid, you know, fight for the small man kind of firm. Um, and the cases would be churned out a lot quicker and things like that. So for that, I really learned valuable experience for the magistrates court and things like that and those types of cases. The second place I was a paralegal, they did kind of more high profile frauds or longer investigations but also some very very serious crown court work like murders and grooming cases both of those firms I learned so much how to deal with different types of clients how to deal as well with different types of solicitors and what they need and things like that which again helps you in pupillage when you're on your feet because you know what's important to what type of firm um but honestly, it was so invaluable because when you're a paralegal, particularly in criminal, in the criminal realm, if you get the opportunity to go to prisons to take instructions or go down to the cells in courts, when you're then on your feet, it's not so daunting because you know exactly what you're doing. You've done it before. This isn't the first time you've been alone with a client um, and having to do these things. Whereas other people who haven't had that experience might find it more scary the first time they have to do that. You you really moved from one professional job to another and you constantly maintained professional employment between BPTC and Pupilage. How important was this sort of 
immersement in real legal world in terms of building your CV? It was hugely important because unfortunately <laughs> for me, the bar is still quite a snobby profession. And I got uh, my degree, my initial degree is not from a university, which is very unfairly not regarded as one of the best. So I didn't go to a top, like I didn't go to Oxbridge or, you know, a top tier red brick. And because of that, I desperately needed to do something to demonstrate a, that I was good, and B, I had a commitment to the job. Because I think one of the biggest things, particularly if you're going into any area which is predominantly legal-aided, is that you need to show that you're commercially aware of the challenges it faces. Because everyone just thinks you're a lunatic if you know they hear that you want to go into crime. The first question is always, why? There's no money in crime. And so by building up my CV for those three years, it really helped me demonstrate to chambers that look I'm acutely aware that the pay is crap I'm aware that I'll be running around like a headless chicken I'm aware that you know the clients are difficult and you know it's going to be a lot of hard work but look I've done all of this I've worked for a pittance for many years now and this is really what I want to do so I think you know it's really important if you can't you know, if you don't have the luxury of being able to travel the world for a year or something like that, just build up your CV because it will assist you in the application process ultimately. Yeah, and I think identifying what it is that you need to get out of those gap years, basically, mm. between BBTC and pupillage is really important as well because, you know, everyone's circumstances are different and how you go about filling the gap really needs to be, like, specific to you and what factors you yeah. need to consider. So for you, obviously... Well, other people, you know, a factor is needing to financially sustain yourself during this gap because, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. And if you want to stay in London, you know, you're going to have to find a job to be able to do that. Um, and then also looking at what specific areas of your CV that you need to build up because you, everyone has weaknesses in your CV. There are certain parts of your CV that are always going to be a little bit better than others. And taking the time to like really focus on those areas can be really helpful. Um so I suppose you find yourself having to do that juggle, that precise juggle, having to juggle your considerations of like your financial needs and the fact that you you felt your CV lacked in like certain areas based on, exactly. you know, the university you went to. So you had like making up to do for that, basically. Yeah. And that's part of the reason, particularly why I was a legal researcher for six months, because on the GDL and the bar course, you don't do the same kind of academic research as you would in a legal undergraduate degree. So that was something that I definitely needed to boost. Yeah, I think by the end of the bar course, you've kind of forgot what waste law is because you just don't use yeah, it at all. exactly. You know, unless you get involved with Mooton during the bar course, which is something that you can do to build your CV. Again, you know, before even before the gap between BBTC and pupillage. Um, but yeah, if you're not Mooton, then you're not really doing any sort of like specific legal research on BBTC that's going to help you when you get to the bar, I don't feel, because it's just it's just so procedural based and procedural heavy the content of the BBTC and then obviously of course there'll be people who fall into the category where they don't have any financial pressures and they don't feel that there is a specific area of their CV lacking um, and so they might obviously head off to 
like travel the world, as you mentioned, like the, the luxury of that, or or just go into something completely different and just like leave law behind for a little while. But I suppose, Anchor, just a question that I have for you about that is what advice would you give to people who are maybe considering just going off grid in terms of leaving the legal world behind for a little while? Because ultimately, I mean, surely it's important not to stray too far away from the ultimate goal of obtaining pupillage because in the sense that it's important you fill the time between BBTC and pupillage with something that will actively contribute towards your award of pupillage in the end because there's there's no point in going and doing something that you can't bring back and relate to pupillage and show and use to demonstrate that you're now more prepared than you were last year or the year before that. Yeah, so... I think that's a particularly important question at the moment to do because obviously COVID is happening and I think a lot of people will be worried about what they're going to do at the moment because obviously there aren't very many legal jobs available at the moment actually because everyone's worried about hiring and things like that. But ultimately, say if you were lucky enough that you felt that your CV was amazing and you could afford to go away and do something else, I would be wary of leaving as you say everything completely behind because you need to be able to demonstrate a dedication that this is actually what you want because what you have to remember is you're competing against literally hundreds of other applicants who will be able to reel off what they've done to be dedicated now if you're in a financial position where actually the legal jobs in the area that you're interested in just don't pay enough and you need that extra money because you're in so much debt now. So you have to go take another better paid job that has nothing to do with what you want to do. Sets will understand that. But then at the same time, I would do something like trying to write articles, start a blog, get yourself published, doing all those sorts of things. So you can show that, yes, you needed that. So you, you could be able to do pupillage eventually, but you've still kept your finger on the pulse and you know exactly what to do because I do think it's dangerous to just kind of leave everything behind and think that you'll just be able to slip back into the application process I would wait to go off and do something random until you've secured pupillage and you have that year gap in between naturally and I think just touching on what you said there about um people who go off then because they need more money and a job that's specific to pupillage or their hunt for pupillage isn't going to pay enough. I think it's also important that if that is the case and you do have to go and do something different for more money, you need to to say that and you need to be clear about that to Chambers because you can't leave it to them to read between the lines because ultimately if they're faced with 50 applicants, they're, they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt at that stage on paper. Um, so it's best to just really explain and justify what you did during the time that you had, no matter what it is, even if it is something that is so specifically relevant, you still got to justify why you did it, what you've learned from it, how it's made you a better person, how it's made you better for the job. Um, and that, that goes even more so for whenever you you do have to leave and go to something less specific you've got to justify why definitely I agree looking back would you have done anything differently with the time that you had I don't think so I think I mean (laughs) the parking assessor job was a bit random but it was very well paid um But no, other than that, I don't think I would have done anything differently because I did learn something from all of the jobs that I had. And in particular, the being a legal researcher was so helpful and I'm still in touch with him. And also 
the first firm I was a paralegal for, I now have a good relationship with one of the paralegals there who left to go to a different firm who's now a solicitor. So we've worked on cases now professionally together as grown-ups, so to speak. And as well for the second firm, I've really got a good relationship with them still. They instruct me now. And I was actually through them that I was able to get a better relationship with the chambers I'm at now. So I think I wouldn't change anything if you're not lucky enough to have pupillage straight away definitely going into the world of employment can really really assist you in the end in not only obtaining pupillage but actually your practice after pupillage because once you've got a relationship with a solicitor's firm it's never really a bad thing. And to finish on a super positive note hopefully (laughs) um, I need to ask was the wait for pupillage worth it in the end? Definitely definitely it was worth it when I finally started and obviously now I finished it I was just it was just the best feeling there were some days in between the day that I got it and the day that I finished I thought what on earth am I doing when I was on the way to Newcastle on a Saturday I thought this is an all-time low in my life and you know when inevitably you get sent to the wrong court on a day But actually, it was definitely worth it. All of the hard work and all the blood, sweat and tears that go into it are amazing. And the day, I can only speak from a crime perspective, but the day that you get your first acquittal, everything just makes sense. And you're just like, this is why I worked so hard. So I think I would tell anyone who is listening who has experienced a rejection, don't give up. Your time will hopefully come. And when it does, everything will fit into place. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I mean, your story is is definitely inspiring. And actually, I use LinkedIn and Chambers profiles to research all of my guests, but I, I couldn't help but notice that on your bio on LinkedIn, it just says, I am a determined young woman. And I just loved that because it was just so straight <laughs> to the point. And I just, I don't think anything exemplifies determination um, better than picking yourself up and trying again and again to get pupillage because it is one of the hardest processes that, you know, we can go through. And it really is... A barrier that you just have to try and overcome the best you can if you want to be a barrister but um thank you so much for really honestly and openly sharing your experience and i know the people listening to this will relate um relate really hard and hopefully it will mean that those who have experienced rejection in the past few weeks will find the courage and determination within themselves to try again because at the end of the day we've worked far too hard to give it all up now exactly and thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it thank you Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.